You're listening to the Ant Hill podcast from The Conversation. This is part four of our series, Recovery, looking at some of the major crises throughout history and how the world recovered from them. I'm your host, Annabelle Bly. So far, we've explored the Black Death and the very long recovery that followed. The Lisbon earthquake of 1755, which destroyed the Portuguese capital and shook the rest of Europe. And then we turned to the combined shocks of the First World War and the Spanish flu in 1918. In this episode, we're looking at the United Kingdom in the years immediately following the Second World War. There, the devastation of a global conflict prompted unexpected thinking about what role the state should play in protecting its citizens from hardship and illness. To tell the story of how recovering from the war permanently changed the nation and made it possible to establish the National Health Service, I'm going to pass you over to my colleague Laura Hood, The Conversation's politics editor. The Second World War was the deadliest military conflict in history. It killed somewhere between 70 and 85 million people, which amounted to around 3% of the global population in 1940. Those who survived were left to face a vast reconstruction project. From decimated urban landscapes to emotional trauma and economic devastation, the horrors of the early 20th century amounted to a mammoth recovery challenge. There are many different ways to think about post-war recovery, and many different nations we could consider. But for this episode in our series, I wanted to zone in on the UK, where some surprising political developments took place in the post-war years. A central component of the recovery process after World War II in the UK was the construction of the welfare state, including the world-famous National Health Service. A flurry of legislation in the 1940s brought in what is called a cradle-to-grave social security system, that promised to provide a safety net against many of the evils that plagued the lives of ordinary people as a result of the war. Hunger, sickness and unemployment. There would be better housing, better education and financial support for those unable to work. And there would be publicly funded healthcare for all. A pledge that many would dearly like to hear from their governments during the coronavirus pandemic. The seeds for this project were being sown for years prior to World War II but the singular circumstances of the conflict provided the momentum needed to get the project up and running. So many people were left needing help after fighting ceased that radical thinking was urgently needed. In the end, a project to rebuild after conflict became a complete overhaul of the way the British state operated. It was reconstruction on an epic scale. Now, with the shared experience of economic hardship job losses and health concerns as a result of the current pandemic, it seems like a good moment to re-examine how all this came about in 1940s Britain. With me to discuss World War II recovery are Pat Thane, Visiting Professor in History at Birkbeck College. Hello. Bernard Harris, Professor of Social Policy at the University of Strathclyde. Hello. And Pippa Catterall, Professor of History and Policy at the University of Westminster. Hello. Now, as I mentioned, discussions about offering British citizens greater state support had been going on for a long time before World War II. But I want to begin discussion in 1942. That's when a landmark report by William Beveridge was published, proposing a series of measures to address five giant evils, want, 
disease, ignorance, squalor and idleness. Pat, many people describe the Beveridge Report as laying the foundations for the welfare state. What did he actually propose? Well, it was set up in 1941 to propose reforms to the whole system of social insurance because there had been growing criticism before the war, including Beveridge, that the provision of state pensions, health and unemployment insurance and other benefits that had grown up since the beginning of the century in very haphazard uncoordinated ways. And early in the war, it became obvious that these systems weren't preventing severe poverty. Surveys showed massive poverty among old people, and evacuation showed poverty among urban children. So the committee was intended to propose ways to improve the system. But the government didn't think it was terribly important. And Beveridge was only appointed to chair it because he'd been advising Ernest Bevin, Ministry of Labour, on organising the wartime labour market. But Bevin got fed up with being bossed around by Beveridge, which is rather Beveridge's mode. Beveridge was a specialist in labour matters. So Bevin got him appointed to chair the insurance committee to get rid of him. And Beveridge was very disappointed because it seemed so unimportant. But then he became convinced he could do something important. So what he proposed was a comprehensive programme of state action to abolish want, as he put it. He wrote that the five giants could be destroyed by a national health service to cure disease, good education, good housing to abolish squalor, full employment to end idleness, and improved social security benefits and a family allowance for all children to provide a safety net, as he put it, protecting people from poverty from the cradle to the grave. But he made it clear that his social insurance proposals weren't enough on their own to eliminate poverty, so the state had to find ways to introduce all these other measures, and they were covered by other wartime investigations and proposals. So what he proposed was a unified system of national insurance, providing old age and widows' pensions, unemployment, sickness, disability, maternity and other benefits for the whole working population in all classes, not restricted to manual workers like before, and also covering the non-working wives of male contributors. It would be funded by contributions by workers, their employers and the state. He believed that if everybody contributed to their benefits, they'd be regarded as their right. They paid for them. And so benefits would no longer be a source of stigma, the poor being supported by the rich. And if middle class people also received them, they'd stop resenting paying taxes to help the poor. And so the system was intended to improve social cohesion. And the benefits would be large enough to cover all essential needs for food, housing, clothing, etc., finding enough to live on. He also proposed a new means-tested system, national assistance, to replace the poor law and provide for people who slipped through the safety net of social insurance and needed help. But he expected his insurance system to be so comprehensive that very few people would slip through the net. And the report was incredibly popular among the general public. It seems hard to imagine now, but people were queuing up to purchase copies of it. 
even though it was a government document. Yes, I said it's partly because Beveridge worked so hard to promote it, as he was on the BBC, and he did write articles, and people did queue up. Within a month, 100,000 copies had been sold. And also the government propaganda machine, the Ministry of Information, promoted it because they thought it could really raise wartime morale by promising improved lives after the war. But one person who wasn't enthused was Churchill. He tried to stop a summary of the report being circulated to the troops. Then he had to give in because it was so popular. But he never really supported Beveridge's proposals and hoped it could all be quietly shelved. But then in February 1943, backbenchers won the largest anti-government vote of the war for a commitment to implementing it. But Churchill and the Conservatives still kept their distance. Labour strongly supported it, and its popularity was one element in their doing so well in the 45 general election. And so does that partially explain why the report was published in 1942, but nothing came about as a result of it until the 1945 election? Well, it was never intended to. Most of these wartime proposals, they were intended to be for after the war. And Beveridge never expected implementation until after the war. The report's written with that assumption very clear. And Beveridge famously said at the time, a revolutionary moment in the world's history is a time for revolutions, not for patching. And I suppose that in part sums this up. The war had been so extreme and recovery therefore needed to be based on radical thinking. Well, certainly for Britain, it was it was because it, it was intended to provide for everybody, also most of the population, and provide enough to live on. Whereas the old poor law had been really intended to kind of punish people and force them to find work. But part of what he's suggesting is the state should take over a much stronger role of directing both social and economic change. Thanks, Pat. Turning to you now, Bernard... The Beveridge Report was published during the war and its recommendations were enacted afterwards. What were the key changes to legislation that got the recovery project moving? So if I could uh, refer back to what Pat was talking about. Pat talked about the Beveridge Report and the five giants that Beveridge talked about. They were want, ignorance, idleness, squalor and uh, sickness. And if I focus on on the four of those, on, on want and sickness and squalor and ignorance, then that might be a way to approach this. The first of the sets of reforms to be introduced were the reforms that affected education, which was designed to address the problem of ignorance. During the interwar period, there had been a a sort of growing movement to separate, in effect, primary and secondary education, to have a, a break in the education system at the age of 11. And that was then carried forward through the education reforms that were introduced in England and Wales in 1944 and in Scotland in 1945. One of the the main aims of those acts was to consolidate the distinction between primary and secondary education. And then a second key feature was the decision to remove fees in secondary schools. So before 1939, in order to attend a secondary school, you either needed to have a scholarship or you needed to pay a fee. And the abolition of fees made secondary education much more accessible to a larger section of the population. The second area that I want to uh, say something about is want and social security. 
as Pat explained, a key feature of the beverage report was this idea of consolidating the different insurance schemes that had existed uh, prior to the Second World War. And then post-war policymakers built on this to construct the basis of the social security system. So one part of that was the national assistance scheme. And that was intended to replace the poor law. And it was designed to provide benefits for those who were otherwise facing destitution or serious poverty. And then alongside that, there was the National Insurance Scheme. And the National Insurance Scheme was an attempt to provide a single insurance scheme that would cover all the main risks. So before 1939, you had separate provisions for separate insurance schemes dealing with unemployment, sickness, and retirement or old age. And the National Insurance Act was designed to try to bring all those things together into a single national insurance scheme. So between the two, you have a scheme which is designed to offer protection against the main social contingencies or risks, and then it's reinforced with a uh, national assistance scheme which provides means-tested benefits in case uh, those benefits are not going to be sufficient. The third giant that uh, I want to say something about is sickness and ill health. Before the, the Second World War, uh, Britain had had a health insurance scheme that covered roughly 60% of the male population, roughly 30% of the female population. And through that scheme, insured contributors were able to gain access to a general practitioner, but they didn't have the full range of medical services through that uh, insurance scheme. Then uh, alongside that, there were uh, a number of different hospital services. So there were the voluntary hospitals, which were uh, essentially charitable hospitals that had developed from the 18th century onwards in most cases. And by 1939, those were being funded by a combination of charitable payments, patient payments, and uh, insurance schemes, private insurance schemes. And then alongside them, you had public sector hospitals, and they were either hospitals being run by public health committees of local authorities, or they were essentially old poor law institutions that were now being run by what was called a public assistance committee. So one of the key recommendations of the Beveridge report was that Beveridge said that for his plan for social insurance to work, or his plan for social security to work, there were certain assumptions, and one of those assumptions was a comprehensive national health scheme. And so that was introduced under the National Health Service Act of 1946, and in Scotland 1947, and there's a further act for Northern Ireland in 1948. And these created a national health service that was intended to be taxpayer-funded, free at the point of use, comprehensive so it covered all the medical services that a person might need and universal it was open to the entire British population and then the fourth of the giants that, that I want to pick up from Beveridge is what Beveridge called squalor in other words poor housing again before 1939 large numbers of people were living in unsuitable accommodation either because they were living in what were called slums or insanitary housing or because they were living in overcrowded accommodation. And then clearly the war exacerbates that because the war results in the destruction 
of a significant number of housing units. So there's clearly a need to rebuild Britain, literally as well as figuratively, after 1945. And how did attitudes shift during the war to make these radical changes suddenly possible? I think there are a number of different aspects to that. Um, The first aspect that I would focus on is the extent to which the government was forced to intervene in areas of the economy and society in order to maintain social cohesion and maintain the social fabric. Because arguably one of the lessons of the First World War was that if, if society collapsed at home, it became impossible to maintain the war effort. So some people would argue that was ultimately why Germany lost the First World War, because its domestic arrangements collapsed. So the first key thing was how you preserve civilian welfare in that sense. And the government introduced a number of measures that were designed to do that, of which the most important would have been rationing, which was designed to ensure that there were, as it were, fair shares for all, and everyone had the food they needed in order to maintain a level of physical health. And that, in turn, then helped to shape people's attitudes about ideas around entitlements and so on. I think a second part of it is that the war has an inspection effect. This is something that two economists, Alan Peacock and Jack Wiseman, talked about in the early 1960s. They said that the war affects the way we think about social issues in a number of ways, and one of them is that it casts a kind of searchlight on existing arrangements, and it highlights their deficiencies. And that was particularly true of the hospital service. So it was anticipated at the start of the war that there were going to be lots of casualties, and that therefore the health service needed to be geared up in order to deal with the casualties that would result, both military casualties and civilian casualties because of the threat of bombing. And so this meant that they had to have a close look at the adequacy of hospital facilities around the country. And that in turn helped concentrate minds on the need to improve the coordination of hospital services and also improve the quality of hospital services. One of the ways in which I think popular attitudes are affected is that you have social provisions which had previously been regarded as unthinkable which, when circumstances change, can now be thought. There's also the idea that wars demand sacrifices. Wars were a great disruption to people's lives, or the war was a great disruption to people's lives. And so in order to make this more tolerable, people needed to be offered the inspiration, as it were, that the sacrifices would be worth it, and that what would result from their sacrifices was not just military victory, but a better world in the future. And so that, I think, also helped to shape attitudes. So that's the legislation. Pippa, briefly take us through the political landscape at the end of the war, because it was quite distinctive and it plays an important role in how all of this unfolded. The two main political parties in Britain, the Conservatives and Labour, had worked together in government during the conflict in a highly unusual period of cross-party cooperation. And then very quickly after the end of the war came an election which changed everything. So in 1945, Labour, somewhat to their surprise and indeed to the surprise of uh, many people in the country, not least in the Conservative Party, won a landslide election. They had only managed to win 
150-odd seats at the previous election in 1935. Ten years had elapsed, and there were points during the war when they expected that if they'd, for instance, left the coalition early, the coalition set up with Prime Minister Churchill in May 1940, they would be trounced in an ensuing general election. One of the reasons why they anticipated this was because they thought that they would be facing a khaki election, an election in which people voted for the right because it was on the back of a war, as had happened and had benefited the Tories in 1900 during the Boer War and in 1918 at the end of the First World War. This doesn't happen for a number of different reasons. Firstly, the Labour Party is embedded in the government from 1940 onwards. They are thereby able to move away from the failures of the previous Labour government in 1929-31 when unemployment had soared and instead establish a reputation as a party of government. Um, indeed, in some ways, they managed to become the centre of political debate during the war. As both Bernard and Pat have said, uh, what happened was that a lot of the debate about what does the post-war look like centred around subjects which benefited Labour. Things like housing, and of course large parts of the population were suffering from a loss of housing, or the retention of full employment, the kind of full employment which had not happened under the Conservatives in the 1930s. So going into the 1945 election, you have a situation where Churchill is personally popular as the Prime Minister, but his party is not. And it's the Labour Party who, as the election manifesto coins it, let us face the future, who are talking about how do we win the peace now that we've won the war? Bernard has given us a sense of the kinds of changes in public attitude that helped put the welfare state at the heart of post-war recovery. The shared suffering prompted fresh thinking. Do you think the same could be true today as we emerge from this shared experience of coronavirus? I think that coronavirus, like the war, tests the resilience of the society and demonstrates the need to tackle a number of inequalities in that society which have already been apparent for a number of years. So expose the extent to which the gig economy has produced all kinds of inequalities and the insecurity of large numbers of people. It's exposed the inadequacy of universal credit and uh, not least the uh, delays in payment system that is related to that. It's exposed the housing crisis and the number of homeless people on our streets and the reliance of large numbers of people upon food banks. None of these things were new. It's just like all of these things were already also there in the 1930s. But there wasn't a sense in the 1930s that there was a solution ready and lying to hand. The experience of, if you like, war socialism or, or the organisation of uh, society for that particular end creates a 
discipline and willingness to accept a shift in uh, policies, at least for a time. Um, and you could see that happening across the political spectrum as well. The difference now is that the Conservative government are tackling these things under the temporary provisions of the Coronavirus Act. What we don't know is whether there is a prospect of a real paradigm shift occurring. There are some signs that there is some kind of paradigm sh shifting uh, mentality on the part of the public. What I don't see, though, is, if you like, an overarching national conversation as happened during the war, which created the mood wherein you could move decisively in that direction. Bernard, did you want to add something there? I mean, I think there's a lot of potential there, but, but I think there are also reasons to be cautious. I think if you think about this in the light of experience during the Second World War, then there are certain things that you could argue we have in common with that period. So, uh, first of all, um, I think it's probably true that uh, both between 1939 and 1945 and in the current crisis, more people have a better understanding of other people's vulnerability than they might have done previously. So, in other words, they are less inclined, or they may be less inclined, to blame other people's vulnerability on the personal failings of the people themselves. There's a greater recognition that people can be struck by misfortune through no fault of their own. A second issue is the idea that people also have a greater sense of their own vulnerability. They're more likely to be struck down by misfortune themselves through no fault of their own. And so that sense of greater personal vulnerability may also change people's attitude towards risk sharing. So there is an argument that another important part of the impact of the Second World War on the construction of the welfare state was that it made middle class people feel more vulnerable themselves. And so they saw greater advantages to themselves in sharing risks. And ultimately, the creation of something like the National Health Service is a way of sharing risks across the whole population rather than making each person dependent upon the measures they can take themselves to protect themselves against the risk of ill health. Another part of this is the extent to which the government has been uh, forced by circumstances to intervene in economic life in a way which would have been unthinkable before. It's very hard to imagine that you would have expected a particularly a conservative-led government to accept that it needed to pay 80% of the wages of roughly a third of the population or a third of the employed population. This is quite a remarkable development. I think Pepper referred briefly to what happened at the end of the First World War and the flu pandemic. And that I think is relevant to this discussion because at the end of the First World War, although there were lots of people arguing about the importance of reconstruction, um, there are also lots of people arguing for a return for normalcy and for the return of business as usual. And in the general election of 1918, despite all the arguments that had been aired during the First World War, it was the desire for normalcy that actually won out in terms of the election result over the desire for change. And so there was a, a, the, the Conservatives gained seats in the so-called khaki election.
Pippa, do you want to come in there? There's a great little cartoon called Your Very Good Health, eight minutes long, which was made in 1946, I think, to promote the coming of the NHS. Uh, no, 1949. And uh, it starts off with the idea of public health being a missing market, if you like, which we've already moved to tackling. And that happens in 19th century Britain and other countries because of major outbreaks of infectious diseases, cholera, then anxiety about tuberculosis and so on. It's a simplistic argument, but you could plausibly argue that one of the things which drives a decline in anxiety about the needs of the welfare state is the shift of mortality. Until the 1940s and 50s, you still had large numbers of people dying from communicable diseases. Then that ceases to happen. People start dying instead because of lifestyle diseases, coronary heart disease, cancer and things like that. And that then feeds back into a right-wing agenda of people suffer because of what they do. They're feckless. They deserve to fail. The difference that infectious diseases makes is that everyone can be affected. And if you protect the poor from infectious diseases, you're also protecting yourself. In other words, it drives enlightened self-interest. Um, and creating that sense of enlightened self-interest, because in the end, most people are not sufficiently altruistic to go, oh, yes, let's have a wonderful welfare state because we're all in this together. That's just a piece of rhetoric. In the end, you need to get a sense that by protecting the poor, I'm also protecting myself. That is the only way you'll get people to see the importance of it. And that's what happens during the Second World War. By protecting other people, you were protecting yourself as well because bombs fell indiscriminately. The depredations of Hitler were indiscriminate. The risk of a Nazi uh, victory in the war was indiscriminate. Um, and all of that tended to create more of a sense of actually we need to work with people who we hitherto haven't probably looked down on or seen as being different and created a sense in which even though I may still not like these other people in society, we actually need to work with them. Thanks Pippa. I think that's a nice note on which to end. Whether or not we agree that the Second World War, or indeed COVID-19, are great levellers, it does seem as though there are useful parallels for us to draw on as individuals. As much as anything, it seems that fresh thinking about shared experiences became a vital element of post-war recovery. I think that's certainly something we're all pondering at the moment too. So that just leaves me to say thank you all for joining me to talk about the origins of the British welfare state and recovery from the Second World War. Thanks to Pat Thane, visiting professor in history at Birkbeck College. Goodbye, thanks a lot. Bernard Harris, professor of social policy at the University of Strathclyde. Goodbye. And Pippa Catterall, professor of history and policy at the University of Westminster. Thank you. That was The Conversation's politics editor, Laura Hood. We'll be back next week with part five of our recovery series. It explores the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 and how the different countries of the former USSR and communist Eastern Bloc recovered from the economic crisis that ensued. 
In the meantime, you can read more about Britain's recovery from the Second World War and parallels to our coronavirus recovery today on theconversation.com, all written by academic experts. If you're enjoying this podcast, please tell your friends about us or give us a review wherever you listen. This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by Laura Hood, Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.